Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, and I am calling from an undisclosed location in the Middle East in Washington, D.C., We have not only Julianne Smith from the Center for New American Security, where she is the director of the Transatlantic Security Program, and Sam Vinograd, who is a CNN national security correspondent, and as far as I can tell, the CNN national security advisor. Um, She seems to be playing the role of television national security advisor um, at the moment, so we'll explore that a bit but also who is in Washington temporarily visiting before returning to Old Blighty, which she calls home. (laughs) (laughs) Corey Shockey, who's, you know, putting her American accent in a small locker at the airport. Um, (laughs) Can only imagine what it's really like for you there. Um, Anyway, so, you know, today... It seemed like the right thing to do, and since we have Sam here, you know, is to talk about John Bolton's first day at school. Um, And, you know, strangely enough, we might have made some joke about the United States being about to attack something, and who's he going to attack first? But I think we know. Do we, Sam? (laughs) I think we might be able to discern that Syria might be top on the list. But, David, I think the biggest thing that John Bolton has to worry about, first and foremost, if any of this is going to be an issue, is whether he can manage his number one customer, and that's the president. I mean, I'm trying to picture the president of the United States actually spending the two to three hours in the situation room that this NSC meeting on Syria is going to take sitting there and listening to his intelligence community, listening to people all around the table go out, go around and talk about the different policy options. And so my first question is whether Bolton knows how to actually get through to the president and actually get him to listen. Otherwise, all these meetings aren't going to do a thing. Uh, well, that's a, that a, seems to be a fairly good point. Um, Corey, I was just in a conversation not, I mean, a few moments ago with some Iraqis and some Syrians Italy. And they were like, why would he do this? Why would Assad do it? Why would he use chemical weapons now, um, just as Trump said he wants to leave? So one of the things I thought might might explore is, you know, what's, what do you, go inside the mind of Bashar al-Assad for a moment. Um, uh, what's What's he doing? Uh, so he is uh, winning a brutal civil war by means as bare-knuckled and war crime as he deems necessary. There were rebel groups that were refusing to leave the area that was subsequently on which, in which chemical weapons were subsequently used. After they were used, that rebel group agreed to leave the area. Assad didn't have the ground power, even with Iranian and Russian help, to make that happen. So, you know, people who say there's no purpose to doing this, we're not the only thing that that Bashar al-Assad needs to worry about. He's actually trying to win a civil war. And his use of chemical weapons has actually been um, tactical, not strategic. It has been about how do I... kill enough of my own people that they will surrender to the barbarity I intend to inflict on them. Um, well, that seems horrible, but also kind of logical. Um, Julie, I've heard a couple of theories, one of which was because Trump said he was wanted to pull out, Assad may have seen that as license to do whatever he wants. 
and in the kind of cynically perverse um, that you know the Russians may not want Trump to pull out because he's actually helping to keep a lid on parts of the situation, and so they thought this might provoke him to stay. Again, I'm in the Middle East. You get a lot of these kind of conspiracy theories. I'm wondering what your take is on on that and po the possible Russian view towards all this. Well, you get a lot of conspiracy theories here, too. Um, but uh, I think I'm with Corey. This is a tactic that's worked for Assad. Um, he uses it often to issue the last blow uh, as he's about to take over um, some piece of territory that's being held by the rebels. He did it in Homs, he did it in Aleppo, and now Duma. Um, I think he knows he can get away with it. Uh, he did take note, no doubt, when the Trump administration fired some nearly 60 um, missiles uh, his way when he did it about a year ago. Um, but he also no doubt took note that nothing happened after that. Um, so he has understood in very clear terms that this administration is not prepared to take action. This isn't the only time he's used CW. There have been countless incidents documented by groups like Human Rights Watch. Um, so I, I think it's a sad doing what he does best um, and using a playbook that works and without fear of um, any sort of fear of consequences from the international community more broadly. Now that may change. We, we've heard that the United States is looking at options, but even if the United States and a group of other allies were to take action, um, I just, I, I don't see any follow through. I don't think there's much of a plan of the Paul Mill side of things. There's always a Mill equation and a lot less on the Paul, the political side. Um, we don't even have uh, a secretary of state right now. It's Bolton's first day on the job. So it's, it's hard to know um, what exactly is in the mind of somebody like Assad. Um, but I, I guess I'm not convinced that the Russians kind of either put him up to this or helped undertake this operation in any way, shape or form. But who knows? Can I be so, totally conspiracy minded for a second? Um, oh, great. Yeah, no, that's that's why which, you're here. Which I don't like to do. But, you know, it's interesting. This Israeli strike happened this morning. Um, and Julie, I think we were both at the White House the first time the Israelis struck uh, several years ago. They've had about 100 strikes within Syria. They have been the most willing to overtly counter-regime interests within Syria than any other country. Uh, Julie, to your point, the strikes haven't worked. Um, you know, the, the Syrians keep keep killing other Syrians. But the Israelis have typically gone after Iranians uh, and Iranian interests in Syria. So the timing of this light, latest strike is a little curious to me. We have the CW attack. We don't know a lot about it publicly yet, which is not unusual, particularly based upon the fact that the regime is restricting access uh, for medical and relief groups that no one can get any evidence. And so if the Israelis struck right after, there is a possibility that there is some nexus between the CW attack in Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, again, could be completely a coincidence that Israel did this attack about 36 hours after um, the CW use. But the timing is very interesting to note. That is that that is very interesting. Well, what I wanted to do now, we sort of set the stage with all of this, is that John Bolton um, arrives at the NSC. Um, he arrives there a couple of days after H.R. McMaster got a kind of heartfelt send off um, at, at, from the staff, uh, who I think both admired McMaster to some degree, but also feared feared what was coming next. And um, uh, it, the communications director of the NSC uh, departed before he got there, controversial guy, probably better off without him. But um, what, how does this, what, what, how do you, what do you think Bolton's role is during this first week, Corey, as he settles in? Is he, is he gonna be the trigger happy, or is the only answer to anything uh, kind of fellow that he's been portrayed to be? Or do you think, you know, given Trump and so forth, he's, he's, he's actually going to end up playing a more moderating role? 
So as a general rule, I think giving people responsibility makes them more responsible. Uh, but when John Bolton was the UN ambassador, that theory ran aground. He did not, <laughs> right? He did not become uh, constructive in that environment and never seemed to feel a sense of responsibility to become constructive, to think about how can we make this institution advance America's interests. He, he was just a wrecking ball and never cared that, uh, that the way he chose to do his job actually diminished the likelihood that countries would give their support to the United States for vital foreign policy endeavors. So I say with a great amount of skepticism uh, that, that he may be an outlier case on this. But I do actually think, like if you're a John Bolton, you couldn't get Congress to confirm your recess appointment. Um, and this is your last chance to actually shape how you're viewed. And I think the possibility exists that he will actually try and be a good national security advisor, that he will try and understand what the president wants to do, be bring in ideas from the agencies about how to do what the president wants to do, to corral a process, give the president options. Um, and then the one thing I do think he has the possibility of doing is effectively policing the execution of the president's policies. I have noticed on several occasions the White House people bitterly suggesting that the Secretary of Defense refused to provide options to the president, uh, which I'm skeptical of the validity of, but it shows a White House perspective that DOD is holding back instead of doing what they're told. Um, and this is, as Julie and others have pointed out, kind of a classic tension between the departments and the White House. But I do think Bolton has the potential to actually do this job well and in a way that makes the administration better at what they're trying to do. But again, I am the holder of the tiara of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that statement, I have to tell you, may, may make this a family legacy for generations to come. Um, so, so, Julie, want to take a shot at that? Or I, yeah, I, I, this time I'm not, I'm not with Corey. Uh, I want to be optimistic. I want to believe that this is somebody who cares about his image in this town or his, his kind of legacy as a national security pro. Um, but in this case, I fear, you know, what's past this prologue, we're going to be stuck with somebody who um, enjoys what Peter Baker describes as blowtorch politics and um, is a disruptor like his boss and takes great pride um, in being a disruptor. And um, I mean, he's a bureaucratic operator, so he'll know his limits. Um he won't have full control over U.S. foreign policy and everything we do through the national security lens. But I think he sees an opportunity. We know his views on the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Pompeo shares those views. I think he will work with the president and Pompeo to essentially kill the deal. Uh, and then it, it remains to be seen what they're going to do with this North Korea summit Um while they're pulling out of one deal, they're going to try and create a new one. That's going to be interesting. But yeah, I, I, I have a hard time putting on um, the tiara of, uh, tiara of optimism on, on this one. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong, but I fear you, I'm you not. Wanna, you, you I'll be the angel tiara, <laughs> Right. I was going to say, do you want to give that tiara of optimism a try on there, Sam? See how it fits? Or? Uh, I'm not a, I'm not wanna, a tiara you know, Rosa's, kind of girl. Rosa's, <laughs> Rosa's now now at a conference where so you might be able to go and get a hold of her. Uh, the crowd, I'm here. Yeah. She's here. She's here. Third, third broom closet of the Ministry of Snark skulking, <laughs> skulking here, Rosa. waiting for an opportunity to offer a little bit of doom to this conversation. Well, it seems to be going your way. Want to want to offer some now? <laughs> yeah, I, I hate to say it, as I'm with Julie, not with Corey on this one. I I don't think the odds are looking all that great, but but you never know. Maybe John Bolton will surprise us. 
Uh, One can only hope. Yeah, I just don't, I mean, I don't know John Bolton, but to be national security advisor, you have to be really patient. Uh, And John Bolton has a reputation of managing up somewhat okay, but he has a really bad reputation in terms of managing down and kind of managing around. And at the National Security Council, I mean, how many people are there now? 200 or so. You have to listen to your staff so that you hear all opinions, but you also have to sit down at the table. And so I'm trying to picture, for example, if he's talking about the Iranian nuclear deal, we know that there are members of the cabinet that still support it. Is he actually going to be patient enough to listen to them down there in the sit room as they talk about why the deal still matters and why we shouldn't completely decertify it? Is he going to let everyone talk? Is he going to be patient, hear all those views and not kind of tilt the scales or, or rush through that part of the meeting and just based upon his past legacies at the U.N. or at the State Department, everybody said that he doesn't tolerate anybody that he thinks are fools. I mean, he's kind of on record as wanting to reassign. <laughs> wonder how Intel he's going to do with Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. I just walked right into that one, didn't I? But I, I just don't I don't know. I mean, you have to listen to everyone even if you don't agree with them. And I don't he doesn't have a great track record of doing that. You can't reassign, you know, the head of USAID or Ambassador Haley, well, unless you're Donald Trump, I guess you can. But you can't just decide to reassign them or move them out of the room if you don't agree with them. Your whole job is to listen to them and to kind of accurately represent their views. And I don't know that he's going to do that. Well, first of all, you have to wait long. You know, you don't have to wait that long before people disappear in this administration. Uh, Two of the key appointees, of course, um, are Mike Pompeo, who could have confirmation problems, and uh, Gina Haspel, who could also have some confirmation problems at the CIA. Um, and, you know, as we were talking a little bit ago, one of the things that struck me is you've got this week, Syria, this week, I guess, what is the last day of this week, the 13th? Um, you've got this week, Friday the 13th, really? Anyway, you've got this week, Syria, Um a month from now, you have to deal with the Iran deal. That, I think, May 12th is a deadline in that. And in the middle of that, you have to deal with North Korea. And you don't have a very staffed-up administration. And, and, and Bolton doesn't work down very well. And, you know, kind of suggests to me a scenario where Bolton thinks he's the co-pilot, where, you know, he, he just ignores all that, goes to Trump, plays to his boss, um, and because they don't really have time for a big process and all these things if they're planning to move them along, do they? Okay, I, oops, I'm sorry. No, okay, no, go ahead. I was just going to, like the insurance actuary that I am deep in my heart, say <laughs> there is always time for good process. Wow, that is beautiful. You know, out there in the land of the nerds, <laughs> to listen to this, you know, nothing true, is more though. comforting. <laughs> nothing is more comforting to them. Process. They like curl themselves up. In fact, I think they all have named their binky process. You know, and they cuddle up with it. <laughs> but, yeah, no. There is always there time may be for process. time, but if I, you I want guess, I guess process. They don't they want it. Yeah. Right. I mean, and are there the people there? You can't, you know, you can't have a completely people-less process. And when you have no people who can, <laughs> when you don't have the personnel who can contribute their expertise, you, you know, it's, it is hard, it gets harder and harder to have a effective and substantive process. Well, and the process right now has been cleaning up the president's messes. I mean, I'll just say it, but the process, from what I know, has been working very differently than it has under previous administrations. But McMaster ran a process, and the president just went out and mouthed off to the press and said whatever he wanted and completely circumvented the process. So the process became scrambling to clean all that up rather than doing what the NSC is supposed to do, which is develop policy options, get the president sign off, and then implement them. They became a cleanup squad rather than a a policy arm. All right, well, look, let's, yeah. You want to say something else? Go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, uh, I think it's right that Lieutenant General McMaster ran a process, right? 13 working groups looking at different aspects of Chinese uh, subversive influence in the United States. 
but the problem is the problem with the national security writ large, as Sam suggests, which is that the steering wheel doesn't connect to the engine. And so General McMaster's failure was never developing, never finding a way to to deal with his principal in a way that he could get the principal to take things on board. Um, is there any outcome on a policy issue that was any different because of General McMaster's involvement in it? Maybe only Afghanistan. But there, don't you think the secretaries of state and defense carried the argument? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Although, although I, mean, I mean, to be fair, and part of David, David is the expert on national security councils, uh, having written a book about this. Um, but, you know, is the point for him to change the outcome or is the point for the national security advisor to be the person who most effectively tees up differences of opinion between departments and agencies so the president has a thorough understanding of the issues, the options, the, the contradictions and conflicts, and then makes a decision? You know, so, so being self-effacing and not imposing your own views, does that doesn't strike me as, as a failure. I think, you know, to me, the only failure in McMaster's part was sticking around so long, given that the president made it very clear early on that he wasn't actually interested in getting anybody's views or reading anything or learning anything. You know, it's a deeper problem, but I, I don't think the—I the, I wouldn't judge him based on the degree to which he injected his own views uh, and influenced the outcome. I'm not suggesting well, say, he needed way, to in, in inject his own views, um, but I am suggesting that, that the argument that, you know, McMaster was a bulwark— because of good process and therefore affected outcomes, I think he ran a good process that had no effect at all on outcomes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not because That's of his true. personal yeah. views, but because, right. because the national security's yeah. job. But it's also the national security advisor's job to figure out how to work that yep. effectively. It's not the president's job to figure out how to make the national security advisor. No, and if they job. couldn't communicate. I, I don't, you know, I have to say, I don't know that I agree with that. Okay, um, I, fire away, I think David. It, well, no, I think ideally the, the National Security Advisor has that job, but he only has that job if the president gives him that job. Because the way the National Security Advisor job is written and works, the president determines what it is. And you can be the closest advisor to the president. You can be an honest broker for a process. You can manage the policy hill, you know, getting the process presented and then implementing the process, um, or you can be those things serially or all at once. And it all depends on the president. And mm -hmm. as you said, this president doesn't particularly want a process. What he wants is a rubber stamp and, and especially somebody who will go out on television, particularly on Fox, and make him look good. And that's what he defines the National Security Advisor job as, which is why I think he thinks Bolton will do it okay. I, I, some, you may disagree with me. That's just my, my view. You mean like to, to use the NSA as a surrogate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's two things that we're talking about here. One is the president has to be willing to listen to his national security advisor. That's kind of piece number one. The second is I do think the national security advisor needs to figure out how to best connect with the president. So we heard these stories about right. the master not them just not connecting. So, for example, it is I do think it's up to the National Security Advisor to figure out how best to brief the president and how to get information to the president in a way that the president can digest. There were all these stories about how Trump doesn't read the presidential daily briefing, for example. And like to me, whether he reads it or he gets it verbally, he sees it on an iPad, it doesn't matter as long as he's getting the information. It does sound like McMaster had a hard time getting through to him. So I'm the angel of doom. I'm not wearing the optimism of uh, the tiara of optimism. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to be any more willing to listen to John Bolton. But the question for John Bolton is whether he can figure out a way to get the president to digest information more. And look, I hope that I'm wrong and the president is more interested in listening to Bolton. But John Bolton is not going to should not be there to be Trump's surrogate on Fox News. That's not his job. No, it shouldn't be. 
It shouldn't be, Absolutely but I think that's what be. Trump wants. I mean, right. anybody who calls himself a stable genius clearly doesn't think he needs <laughs> a national security advisor. I mean, he just the bottom line is he doesn't believe in the government writ large. He doesn't think he needs all these advisors to the extent that he does. He tends to like generals. We'll see how Bolton does. I mean, there's a good chance Bolton could be gone uh, within a year or so because he, too, irritates the president because he's trying to do his job one way or another. I mean, I think we can fault McMaster for not acing um, the communication challenges with Trump. But I also think we have to be fair to McMaster and anyone else who's been in the seat um, about the challenges of dealing with someone who fundamentally sees no purpose in the the team that exists around him. Um, I mean, I'm not sure he thinks he needs a chief of staff. Um, and we're entering a phase now where he increasingly believes that he is the one that can make the best judgment calls on everything from domestic policy to foreign policy to hirings and firings and has somehow gained new confidence that he only needs to listen to himself, which has always been his instinct. But there seemed to be a period where he was willing to lend an ear to those around him. Um, and I just worry that Bolton probably will just abandon the process and have fewer or or almost no, no national security meetings in the Situation Room and just do, you know, either rubber stamp what Trump is saying or go on Fox News. I think there's a chance he could be the spokesperson um, and divine his role that way. So who knows? It's uh, Well, we don't know, depressing. but we do know that we do know that Bolton has some objectives, and one of them is to help blow up the Iran deal. Yeah. And, it, you know, it looks like he's going to get that. And, uh, I, mean, I mean, unless there's a dissension on that, I mean, I think over the next course of the next month, I mean, we can't predict he'll be around a long time. But in the next month, he's going to have to deal with Syria, Iran, and North Korea. Um, and the, 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 the one that's simplest from from his point of view, is Iran, because the president wants the same thing that he wants. Uh, in the other two cases, not so sure. Is uh, What do you think, Rosa? Does that make sense as an analysis? Or Yes, David, that makes complete sense as an analysis. I am, I am fully with you. <laughs> okay, and <laughs> therefore... Sorry, I'm in my my broom closet is experiencing slight disruptions at the moment, so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let somebody else answer that. There is one uh, there is one curveball here on uh, the Iran deal, and that is we the Euros want us to stay in the Iran deal. They don't want us to pull out. That's who we're trying to quote unquote renegotiate this thing with. I think we're probably talking to Europeans right now about getting them to do more to sanction Russia. We just sanctioned Russia, uh, Russian oligarchs, government officials and entities. Um, it was what was it last Friday under executive orders related to Ukraine and Syria. The, the administration said it was election meddling. It actually wasn't if you read the, the Treasury statement. But for Russia sanctions to really be impactful in any way, we need the Europeans to get on board because that's where the Russians do so much of their energy business and where all the oligarchs have their assets. So you could see a situation where we're trying to pressure the euros to renegotiate the Iran deal while getting them to do more on sanctions against the Russians. And so that's the kind of thing you would normally discuss in the situation room and weigh the trade-offs over what was more important. So you could see that kind of discussion happening, but that could that could throw a curveball into this uh, decertification, I think. Hmm. Uh, well, okay, maybe it's not all as simple as I thought, but... Um I think, you know, one of the games we play in Washington is what's this guy going to do next or what is this administration going to do next? But another one that we play, which I think ought to be played here, is the, a terrible human tragedy has taken place in Duma and the pictures are horrifying. The reality is more horrifying than the pictures, clearly. Um, and once again, we have an American president who said, you know, there is a red line and you know, they can't cross this red line. And a year ago, almost exactly, he blew up an abandoned airport, practically abandoned airport. It had no real effect, but looked tough. And for a moment, he sort of looked tough. Um, what should he do? What, what should the United States do in this circumstance with Assad 
taking into consideration both the lessons of the Trump presidency and the lessons of the Obama presidency, Corey? Uh, an excellent question and a very hard one. And so I curtsy my thanks that you tossed it to me <laughs> on a panel of so, so much talent that you are giving me the chance to be a first ball fastball hitter, David. Thanks. So what I think they should do that they're not doing. First, I think Trump ought to have consistently implemented the punitive strikes on Assad forces that carried out the um, chemical weapons use. I think I was in favor of him doing it the first time. I wish he'd done it since. I, want I think it would be useful for him to begin doing it again. I do think the right penalty to apply to the Assad government is that every time you choose barbarity to win the civil war, we will reduce your capacity to win that war. So uh, attriting his military forces every time he crosses the chemical weapons threshold. Second, I think we should put refugees and the plight of the Syrian people at the center of our policy, creating safe areas uh, in the borderlands along Jordan, along Iraq, along Turkey, so that um, those countries that have so generously taken in Syrian refugees can, can repatriate them back to Syrian territory so that you re reduce the burden on the surrounding countries. And you need to protect the land that you're putting them in and grow a political leader and encourage human rights and humanitarian and aid groups into that protected space internal to Syria and grow a political leadership that can be the next generation of Syria. So effectively partitioning the country by creating safe areas for Syrians that their government will not do. Okay, Julie. Well, that's a damn good list. Um, I would um, add. I think I mean, you would. I think you would accept Corey as national security advisor. Of course, I would. <laughs> yes. The poor woman's John Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, essentially, what you need the administration to do right now is the the reverse of all of its core instincts. I mean, yes, Corey's exactly. right about refugees. Absolutely. I mean, we would need a Syria policy that cared about something other than the Islamic State. And in everything that Trump has said, minus today and a few remarks a year ago in the face of another CW attack, we haven't had any conversations of late about civilians and refugees. And we all know how red hot all of that is in light of our own immigration debates. So that's one. Two, you need a political process. I mean, again, what I mentioned earlier, they're very interested in what the military options are. No one in this administration seems remotely interested in a political solution that would put um, all the major players around a table and see if we could get the engine started again on talking about what comes the day after and the few hours after military strikes. And I don't want to pretend like any of this is easy. I don't, I don't have a magic wand. None of us do. There's no quick fixes here. Um, but we'd also need ambassadors in all of the major partner countries around the world. It would be great to have ambassadors in Europe, our closest allies, so we could work this on an hourly basis with our closest allies, not to mention throughout the Middle East. It would be great to have assistant secretaries other than one in the State Department right now, <laughs> undersecretaries. It would be great if Pence had a national security advisor. Um, I mean, it, the, the staffing shortages are are so severe and our embassies and our the embassies in town and our partners around the world feel that each and every day as they try to work with us on issues like Syria. So yeah, and then there's Turkey. I mean, if we had, again, an ambassador, a State Department that was functioning, try and work with the Turks on some possibility to turn our attention away from their offensive in Northwestern 
uh, Syria so that we could not have the Kurds that we enjoy working with on the ground in Syria all now moving to that area and away from other areas where we need them for stabilization purposes and assistance on that front. Um, I mean, there's just one Rubik's Cube after the next to try and solve on this. But the way that you do it is first you staff the government, then you staff your embassies around the world, and you have invested in international relationships around the world that now can work with you. I mean, other than the call to Macron, uh, which was important, I mean, Trump doesn't have good relationships with a number of people around the world that could be working with us on this. And then there's the Russia piece. I mean, Trump campaigned on the idea of working with the Russians in Syria. It never came to pass because I hope that someone eventually whispered in his ear that we weren't going to join hands and walk off into the sunset. That said, um, I do think that any solution to this mess in Syria will have to be discussed and debated and sorted with Russians at the table. And that that's just the reality of it. But I, I, again, I don't want to pretend that this is easy. I, I wouldn't envy and I don't envy anyone who's in the U.S. government right now charged with this mission. It's it's impossible and awful. And I've, I've spent many years of my life losing sleep over it. So. Well, you know, in some respects, um, almost all decisions the Trump administration does for the next few months are going to have to be resolved with Russians at the table, one way or another. Um, May I break in on this serious high-level conversation to report the breaking news that Duffelblog, the satire publication (laughs) of military issues, has the most amazing article up now titled, John Bolton Wakes from Terrifying Nightmare of World at Peace. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I love it. I love it. I live for those posts. It should should definitely be a Duffelblog read. Yes, yes. And can I just well, add one thing to what, what Julie please. said and, and Corey said, um, or two things maybe. One is that absolutely we're, we're now operating ourselves from a position of weakness. Um, you know, Trump's only apparent negotiating style consists of saying to people, do this or else, but we don't really have an or else here. Um, you know, and it's that's not always very effective even when we do have an or else, but at the moment we really don't have an or else, um, you know, that we have such bad relations with all of the other key players. Uh, We, you know, it's not quite clear, even if Trump wanted to, how we effectively negotiate with anybody to resolve the situation in Syria. I, I, I would add to that that it's it's a really dangerous situation. You know, when you think of the situations in the world today, most likely to accidentally set off a major great power conflict, this is it. Syria is it. You know, that sort of everybody's in the mix. Uh, uh, There are poor communications mechanisms between them. Um, We have very little leverage. Uh, We have dismantled our diplomatic apparatus anyway. Um, We have, you know, we have Iran in the mix, uh, obviously, and we have the Russians, and the I think that this remains the, the situation in which the the danger of actually getting into a direct military conflict with another nuclear power is more significant than anywhere else in the world. So we we hold a rotten set of cards, and it's a really dangerous situation. Well, it is kind of interesting, by the way, that as all of this was unfolding, and it may well be that some people are listening to this podcast after the United States has made an attack on Syria, it seems possible that this may happen, um, that we heard from the Iranians that they said that if the U.S. pulls out of the nuclear deal, the response of Iran will be much tougher than anybody expected, much more surprising than anybody expected. Uh, And you have the Syrians acting a little bit more, I mean, uh, aggressively, which is hard to hard to imagine, but but certainly this week it seems like nobody's really a- afraid of the United States in this circumstance, and this could be provocative. I want to give you a chance, Sam, um, to to add to the list of what we should be doing, what the United States should be doing, but maybe perhaps particularly in the context of. What do you do after a strike? Because we did a strike the last time, yep. and then we did nothing. 
Uh, and, you know, it, you know, it, to use Corey's uh, recurrent baseball metaphor, it was kind of a, a purpose pitch, a message, you know. <laughs> but, Brush but, the batter but, back. Yeah, right. But at the end of the day, you've actually got to have a strategy. You've got to do something after the pitch. And we don't have one. And right. so I'm just wondering what you, th- what, 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 where you think we ought to go with this. Well, I mean, to be honest, when Donald Trump took that strike originally, I was glad. Um, you know, I, I was glad to see a president set a red line, do something about it. And I thought send a message that this was not tolerable behavior. The problem is we've had, what, two more chemical weapons attacks since that strike. So it's clear that it was literally a shot across the bow with no follow through. And even worse, you know, we talk about pulling troops out. We turn refugees away. So the, the strike to me was just a bunch of missiles that hit a hit a, uh, an air base that was functioning a few hours later. So I think this brings us to the point of what should kick off this National Security Council meeting on Syria that I think is happening right now, John Bolton first, which is what actually matters to Assad, Putin, and Iran? What's actually going to lead them to change their behavior? A bunch of tomahawks isn't going to do it. We know that. Israeli striking uh, Syria, Israel striking Syria is not going to do it. So I think all the things that uh, everyone else listed are entirely right. But strategically, I think we need to ground this in what's going to change Putin's mind. Assad, to me, is in some ways a pawn for Putin. I mean, I think without Putin, I don't know if anyone disagrees, if Putin was not backing Assad, would he still be able to do all this? To me, the answer is no. So to me, the Trump card bad pun is Vladimir Putin. And so with that in mind, I think our strategy has to be grounded in getting Putin to actually believe that continuing to support Assad is going to result in a net loss to what matters to him. And what matters to Putin is Russia returning as the great power in the world that depends on its economy. It depends on its image. And so that's where, again, I think you get back to cutting off Putin's ability to move goods and services around the world, put more sanctions on him from Europe. It depends on his ability to sell arms to our quote-unquote allies, Saudi and Turkey, uh, who signed deals, by the way, that should uh, put them under U.S. sanctions. They bought Russian air missile defense systems, which is incredible. Um, And so, to me, the strategy would be grounded in cutting Russia off from all those things that matters to it. And so I'd start in Europe And then I'd go to the Saudis and the Turks and I'd say, listen, the situation is so bad. We need you to walk away from these deals and tell Putin that if he doesn't dial down his uh, support for Assad, you're going to stop doing business with him. Otherwise, I think we're going to start seeing, yes, we'll see missile strikes from the United States, from Israel. We'll see some tough rhetoric. But I I don't think we're going to get Congress to authorize ground troops in Syria, for example, that have a larger mission than countering ISIS. And we can talk about that. But Absent that kind of shift in Putin's calculus, I think we're going to see seven more years of horror and 500,000 more people killed. Wow. That's they, a, don't call, they don't that's call a, me the angel of doom for nothing. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I can just, just as the other angel of doom, remind everybody the, once to again. To make the rubble bounce. <laughs> well, but, but once the again, other angel of doom. you know, I oh. mean, I think it is worth asking ourselves what, if anything, has now changed? What, what, it, what, if anything, about the situation is different today than it was three days ago before this latest chemical weapons attack? And on some level, the answer is that nothing has really changed, that Syrian civilians have been dying in a wide range of gruesome ways. And you can kill people very, very dead, very painfully and very unpleasantly without resort to chemical weapons. And we've been tolerating that. We've been tolerating that, obviously, for years now. Um, And we we have, for a variety of reasons, um, some of them having to do, obviously, with international law, we have made this the putative red line. Um, Although, of course, if we really care about international law, it's not particularly clear that the U.S. military presence in Syria or any U.S. military response to the chemical weapons attack would itself be lawful. You know, so so on the one hand, I think, is this horrific? Yes, it's horrific. Um, is Is it inherently more horrific and more requiring of a sort of urgent response today than it was three days ago. It's not particularly clear that we ought to be in in a rush today that we weren't in three days ago. Um, 
I mean, should we be, should we have been in a rush at every point in the last, uh, whatever it is now, seven years? Yes, we should have been in a rush for the last seven years. Uh, and we, but I do think that the, if I may once again echo the, the Corey saying, there's always time for good process, you know, that they're, <laughs> they're now too, this is not in fact an emergency any more than it was three days ago. It's a, it's a, it's a gaping wound that has been there for years and we shouldn't, I, you know, we'll see what John Bolton does. We'll see what Donald Trump does. But I actually think this is the moment to sort of resist the impulse to, you know, immediately try to do some decisive something uh, as opposed to say, boy, this is really the time to think really, really hard about what are our options. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know particularly high hopes. I think that the, the framework laid out by, by Corey and then added to by Julie in terms of what we should do is unlikely to be the one that they do adopt. But but I don't, I, I don't want us to be sort of adding to the sense of must do something right this instant when we didn't for the last seven years. But now we really have to. Um, I, you know, no, I think we still have time for process. There's always time for process. It's like the jello. There's always room it. for process. I love it, that David. <laughs> Do you agree intellectually? I know you agree with this as one of the foremost scholars of the National Security Council and processes. But I also know that emotionally you just can't bring yourself to carry that tune, can you? No, well, first of all, I, I, the only reason I might possibly be considered a leading scholar in the NSC is because there aren't many. Um, which, by the way, was probably the reason I wrote those two books on the NSC because, you know, it was like open space. But in any event, uh, no, I, there is room for process, but I do think you have to be the holder of the tiara of optimism to believe it's actually going to happen. There is no evidence that it's going to happen here. Uh, and there is also a very kind of stark fact, and I say this with all respect to our friends who served in the Obama administration, which is the majority of people on the podcast. Um, and that is the Obama administration from time to time actually had a pretty good process. And they it, just had a crappy policy. They had a crappy policy, exactly where I was going. And that's the problem. Good process doesn't always lead to good policy, uh, even when they're good people doing it. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, there is something dark and disturbing about the fact that the most earnest intellectual president of the United States in recent memory with a good group of people around him came to the wrong decisions or ineffective decisions uh, that uh, whatever their motivation led to deterioration of the situation and some of our interests. And that the worst president of the United States in modern history with a completely dysfunctional process came out in roughly the same place. Um, and, and, it, and it, you know, I was describing it to somebody today in a conversation. I was saying there's a big debate in the United States over Syria policy between the people who don't think we ought to get involved because remember the war in Iraq and the people who don't think we ought to get involved because let somebody else handle it. And, right. you know. And that's that's the debate. There, right. there is there is no strong consensus for action, even though, you know, the situation seems to cry out for it. Uh, in any event, uh, I think we're going to just have to wait and see. And that's where we're going to, you know, uh, I, I think have some decisions made fairly quickly and some action fairly quickly. Uh, and we'll follow it. We'll follow it here at this podcast destination. Um, and uh, I have to say, it's very nice to have you on, Sam. And I hope you will Yay, come back. Yay! Thank you for Thanks, joining guys. us. And and I th and I I think we've really started something here with you and Rosa together being the angels of doom. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> the optimism and angels of doom. I love it. Yeah, I, th I think it's a it's a there's a whole marketing campaign that can be built around it, and an interesting kind of girl group. You know, I mean. <laughs> Yes, indeed, David. Performing. Among your many magnificent qualities is what a terrific cultivator and curator you are of female voices in the national security Amen. space. Amen. Well, you know, it 
Common sense, you know, is... Uh, is not so common, as Voltaire told us. Well, <laughs> my mama all didn't shots. raise no fool. I think you're supposed anyway. to say all shots. <laughs> uh, yeah, now, look, I'm very glad that you guys are here. Um, and uh, Rosie weren't here when we were talking about it at the beginning, that, you know, Corey is in London, at, or on her way to London, which she referred to, and you would have been disgusted at this. As her home, um, uh, yeah. It's, it's like, what's going on Corey here? Is, and I happen to know that Corey is not in London. Corey is in a ballroom, and I'm in a room. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. <laughs> no, she's on her. She's on route, and Julie is on route to you know Middle Europe. Um, and, and and I think I can't wait. That's fine. It's 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 a little frightening for those of us who are being left behind. Like, what do they know that we don't know? We're all getting out of the North Korean targeting grid just in oh, time. God. Exactly. Yeah, well. On Sam, that happy you, note. You can join Rosa and us in the silo that Rosa has identified for us. Um, I feel safer uh, already. Yeah, we will all be deep in the So Anyway. Thank you all for joining for this episode of Deep State Radio. Please join us again soon, all four of you, but also everybody out there listening in Deep State land. Um, and um, there uh, were so many Deep State nerds at the Future of War conference today. It was fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, where do you expect them to be? Having movies. <laughs> You know, meeting, meeting people of the opposite sex and having a meaningful relationship. <laughs> that, that's why I'm in a broom closet. I'm hiding from our fan base. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's what, 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 what you're left with there is, you know, these people, you know, who sort of go up to each other and say, hmm, hmm, what's your favorite Merv? Um. <laughs> okay, that's a pickup line that's actually worked on me, David. So, okay. no judgment zone. Trust upon, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Did, did, didn't mean to, didn't mean to bring, bring back bad memories. All Ooh, right, close so, to the bone there, David. Yeah, so sorry. So sorry. Well, go heal that wound, and uh, we'll all talk again very soon. Uh, thanks to everybody, and. Thanks, guys. Uh, Tune in, tune in again soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>